As the children make their way out, if you would, take your Bibles and find uh, John 17. That's where we will start this morning. This conversation of unity. And so, as many of you know, as probably most of you know by now, we, uh, a few months back, had the opportunity to work through establishing vision and values for Dale Bible Church uh, and our extended, uh, extended ministry team, about 20 individuals, came together on a weekend, had done a little bit of work ahead of time, but come together to establish uh, vision uh, for Dale Bible Church and then values to support that vision. And, uh, and so we've actually been working through that ever since, starting back in August, so a couple months now. Well, it's November, so a few months now. And this morning, we will look at our fourth and final value. And uh, we value unity. That's our fourth and final value. Therefore, we strive to walk with humility and gentleness with one another in love and in oneness of faith, elevating biblical precedence over personal preference. You see, the concept of unity is in the Word of God from the very outset of God's Word. We see that there is perfect unity that exists between the three persons of the Godhead. There is perfect unity initially in the first marriage of a man and a woman between Adam and Eve. And at the very end of God's Word, there is perfect unity between another marriage, that is the marriage of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church his bride. And I would submit to you this morning that everything that lies in between there, which would be the full counsel of God's word, is a quest for unity. Not only for those throughout the pages of Scripture who are pursuing unity, but also in the pages of Scripture, the exhortation that the church has to today pursue unity. Over and over again, all throughout the pages of God's word, we see the call to unity. And the reason for this emphasis is simple, and we've touched on this in some form already. Because when unity is lacking, here's the, here's the result. The fruit of lacking unity is difficulty, conflict, strife, and little is accomplished. But when unity is experienced... I won't submit to you that everything is perfect, but where there is unity, there is function that is healthy, and in healthy function, much is accomplished. And this is likely why David says, as we've looked at already in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant, what a concept, right? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Boy, that is a good thing, and it's an enjoyable thing. It's, it's, unity is something that we want to experience. David says it's, it's pleasant. And so unity amongst brothers, and that is not just for men, but unity amongst believers as a whole, is, it is a thing of beauty. And it is something that should be desired by those who are in Christ. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that it is one of the primary things that should be desired by the people of God. Unity with one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul calls the church in emphasis, this is just one example, Paul calls the church in emphasis to unity. 
And the word that is translated as unity in our English Bibles in Ephesians 4, verse 3 and verse 13, is actually the Greek word that means oneness. So when he calls the church in Ephesus to unity, and in chapter 4, we'll look at it in a minute. We're just going to reference it. Back in June, I actually preached Ephesians 4, so I don't want to just re-preach that, that, that same passage or that same message per se, but we do want to reference it because it's significant. And Paul's writing there to the church, and he's calling them to oneness. And again, Ephesians 4.3 and 4.13 are the only places in the New Testament where this word appears. And the sense of this oneness in Ephesians 4 is that it is caused by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the believer. So Paul is not calling the church in Ephesus to muster up unity with their own strength. Paul is not calling the church in Ephesus to be unified around the things that they like or don't like or agree with or don't agree with. Paul is calling them to unity on the basis of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what the Lord Jesus has accomplished, and the fact that if you believe that, the Holy Spirit of God resides in you, enabling you to actually have oneness. And so this is a big deal. And I would submit to you that in other words, oneness is experienced when those who possess the Holy Spirit of God live according to it. And that's why this particular passage, or this particular, particular chapter in Ephesians, that's why this chapter begins with Paul exhorting the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling. What is their calling? Oneness. Paul says, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he starts talking about this oneness of faith that's established in all of the things that the church believes based on the word of God that promote, cultivate, keep, and cause oneness. And what does it mean to walk worthy of that calling? It means that as he writes to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus, not emphasis, although there is a strong emphasis here. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's calling them to this, this, this oneness. And so when he says, walk worthy of that calling, what he's saying is, pursue oneness with your life. To the individual believers in Ephesus, pursue oneness amongst one another with your lives. The church at Ephesus, you can pursue oneness with other like-minded bodies of believers. Okay, but if the church is going to be effective, she must be united upon what is true from God's word. And so Paul says there in that passage that if, if an individual is going to walk worthy, if they're going to pursue oneness, he's very clear that without humility, gentleness, patience, and love, oneness will not be experienced by the church. And so... I would submit to you this morning that the necessity of unity or oneness cannot be overstated for the church. Unity is a non-negotiable in the church. And we'll talk about why as we work through our time together this morning. But unity is a must 
And consider with me, and I want to belabor this because we've talked about this in a few different capacities already, but just looking at the, the letter of the, uh, ch- to the church in Ephesus, the letter we call Ephesians as a whole, the first three chapters is all theological teaching. It's, all, all, it's, it's Paul telling the church in Ephesus all about what Christ has done and who, uh, who they are in Christ what has been accomplished on behalf of them and their faith, right? And then when we shift to chapter four, the last three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians, it's the outworking of the theological instruction they just received. And that's why chapter four begins with what word? We're not looking at it, we will in a minute, but what word? Therefore. Therefore, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has accomplished, now that you know that, therefore, live worthy of that and pursue oneness with one another. Pursue oneness and be united together. He tells them what they need to know. He tells them that in light of what they know, they need to pursue unity. Unity in the body of Christ is a must. And if we're to experience unity here at DBC, if other churches are to experience unity, um, there's a few things that we need to be mindful of always. Always. Number one, I want you to understand this. Jesus desires unity for his followers. Jesus desires unity for his followers. And so now I want to turn our attention to John 17, where I encourage you to join me this morning. John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus is praying in the garden right before his arrest. Right before he gets arrested after being betrayed and then ultimately will be crucified, he has what we call the high priestly prayer. And it's this big, long prayer that makes up all of John 17. And Jesus is praying for all kinds of things. But one of the primary things that Jesus is praying for is his followers, the apostles, those who will be left when Jesus is crucified. And then he talks even about those who will come after them, the church. That is you and I. We read this in John 17, verse 11. Jesus praying, he says this to the Father, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then jump down to verse 20. Jesus, he's continuing to pray, and he says, I do not ask for these only. That is the disciples who are presently there and have lived with Jesus and walked with Jesus. But he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's who we refer to as the church. Believers following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Acts chapter 2, the church was born. And all believers in Jesus Christ from that point until the time he comes back are part of the church. They're part of the ones who will believe on account of the testimony of the apostles. And Jesus says that they may all be one through the apostles' word, that those who also will believe that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity is necessary in our lives. It's necessary in the church. It's the desire of Jesus for the church. 
And Tony Evans, in his book of illustrations, he says this, if a football team is unified, it does not mean that everyone's playing the same position. It does mean everybody's going to the same goal line. If an orchestra is harmonious, it's not because they're all playing the same instrument. It's because they're all playing the same song. And if a choir is singing in great harmony, it's not because they're singing the same parts. It's because they're adding their part to the same song. It is the goal that produces the unity. Unity is not sameness. Unity has to do with the same purpose. See, our oneness comes from who we are in Christ and the goal that we have. Right? Because the church universally has been left with the same task. Make disciples. Teach. Preach. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this this unity to be uh, experienced and accomplished has to do with what we believe and what our, our goal is. In the truth of these examples of needing unity, I want you to understand something. You guys know I love football, right? And, and, and right now, I shouldn't say this. It'll probably go south. Um, Michigan's football team is 10-0 for the first time since 2006, right? And um, so Michigan's having a really good season. One of the things that the University of Michigan does really, really well is run the ball down your throat. They put five guys up front, okay? They put some tight ends out here, and they tell everybody in the world, we're going to say hike, and we're going to give this guy right here, Blake Corum, number two, he's five foot eight. We're going to give him the ball, and we're going to smash it down your throat until we get in the end zone. And guess what? You can't do anything about it. You guys know that I love football. And it is a thing of beauty to watch Michigan function. But it pales in comparison to the beauty that it is when the church experiences unity. The church is called to unity. And she must be unified. And Christ, he desired this for his church. He desired this for his bride, that she would be unified. And so he prayed for unity, and he equipped her for unity. So if we're all set to go in the same direction, then there's a few things I want us to notice also about Jesus' prayer. He prays desiring unity for the church, but there's a few things that we learn about this unity and about going in the same direction. Number one, unity is not going to be easy. Notice verse 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And Jesus flat out says, the world will hate the followers of Jesus because they are not of this world. But notice that Jesus doesn't ask the Father to take the believers out of the world. In fact, he says, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you, Father, to keep them from the evil one. And the evil one is, of course, a reference to the devil. And the point is that the devil is the one who makes unity difficult. The devil is at work because he knows the significance and the importance of unity within the body of Christ. He has many tactics and he has many schemes at his disposal to try and to destroy the unity of those who are in Christ. And if we want to withstand those schemes, then we must be close to God's word. Notice verse 17. 
Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said prior to now, I have given them your word. God's word is key in fulfilling the desire for unity that Jesus has for his bride, the church. In verses 17 and 14, both, Christ expresses the reality that he has given those that he is leaving God's word. And if the church is going to be unified, then unity must come around what God's word says. Period. Unity only comes, true, biblical, God-honoring unity only comes when it is built around what God's word says. And nothing else. Nothing else. And this is why you might remember, perhaps you don't, I'll remind you, a few months ago when we started looking at the vision and the values The very first thing we talked about when it come to our vision was the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word. We want to faithfully teach and preach God's word here. Not just from the pulpit, but in our men's meeting downstairs, in our kids program downstairs or at the community center, and our growth groups that meet weekly, we want to preach and teach God's word accurately. Why? Because it's what unites people. We say we have one faith. Well, that one faith is built around where we find that faith, in God's word. Our goal is to instill God's word into the lives of his people with hopes that by doing it in a corporate manner, his people would develop a desire for the personal intake of God's word. I I know I've said forms of this before, and I'll say it again. Your intake of God's word on Sunday morning from 1030 when I get up here till 1115 when I stop talking is not enough. It is not enough. Number one, it's not enough for you to be who Christ has called you to be. You can't have the mind of Christ. You can't live a life that's pleasing and honoring to Christ when you get 40 minutes of God's word, okay? So you, you, you can't be who Christ has called you to be. But, but secondly, as we've talked about, like, you're, you're, you can't be unified. We can't, we can't be committed and connected around that which we don't know, okay? But then also we talked about Jesus says here he prays, Father, keep them from the evil one. It is not an accident. Nobody ever resists the schemes of the devil by accident. You want to be devoured? You want to get caught up in sin? You want to see your life crumble and you got to be left trying to pick up the pieces? At which point then we want to try to turn to Christ and make sense of our lives? Neglect his word and fall victim to the devil's schemes and tactics. And I promise you, you'll get to pick up the pieces of your life. See, he knows what he's doing. And I know sometimes whenever we talk about the devil, right, it always seems like fanciful, don't it? You know, I saw something the other day that said the devil doesn't appear like this. And it was like this big red horned thing, you know, like what Hollywood would depict the devil. And it had the devil displayed as like just everyday stuff. Things that we have given priority that ought not have it. People who don't preach and teach God's word. Things like that. You'll only be able to recognize the schemes of the devil as much as you know God's word. 
And Paul literally tells the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, we've referenced chapter 4 this morning, in chapter 6 he literally says, put on the full armor of God that you might be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. We must know God's word. Not just in this manner, but you at home. You must know God's word. We cannot be unified as a body around God's word if we don't know what it says. Jesus desires that his church would be unified. And we must realize that unity does not happen by accident. Achieving and maintaining unity is also not easy. Everything in the world seeks to prevent unity in the church. Because if the church isn't unified, as we've already talked about, when unity is lacking, the, the, the product or the fruit of lacking unity is conflict, difficulty, strife, and little is accomplished. So the world, the devil, that is, he's going to throw everything that he can at, at, at impacting or destroying the unity of the body of Christ. Because it's not easy, we must grow in our quest to maintain unity by knowing where it comes from, by examining the primary example of unity. Not only does Jesus desire unity, but he demonstrates how to achieve unity. And sometimes, if you're like me, you're like, okay, great. You told me what I, I need to know. You told me what I need to do. But how do we do it? Well, Jesus demonstrates how to achieve unity. Turn your Bibles over to Philippians chapter 2. Very common passage. Uh, I, I, I trust this is a familiar passage. Uh, it's it, just an absolutely marvelous glimpse of the humility of Jesus Christ. But we read this in Philippians 2, beginning in the first verse. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. As we see over and over again in God's word, what Christ calls his church to, he equips her for. Okay? We don't have the ability to say, unity is too hard. Unity is outside of our reach. Unity is unattainable. Because Christ has called us to unity, and he's showed us how unity is achieved. He demonstrates in this passage, if you're familiar with Philippians 2, you know that as Paul's writing here, in verse 5, he launches into this full-fledged example or explanation of how Jesus thought of others before himself. He demonstrated there how to achieve this unity. And Paul, as he's looking at this example of Jesus, he says there's some things that the church in Ephesus should do, but he also says there's some things the church in Ephesus should not do. He says be of the same mind, having the same love, be in full accord with one another. You see, the only thing that will unify different people from different walks of life is the Word of God. Now, we don't live in, a very, we don't live in an area that's very uh, demographically diverse. And so many of us have a similar walk of life, 
But there's still a lot of differences that exist in this room. Not all of us are from here. Not all, not all of us have lived here our whole lives. Some of us have, right? Some of us are married. Some of us are not. Some of us are in school. Some of us are not. Some of us work. Some of us are retired. There's all kinds of demographics that are, that are, are, are just found on, within this little body. And yet there's enough going on that we need something to unify us. And that something, of course, is Christ's word and his example that we find in his word. If the word of God is not followed as the authoritative guide for the church and life, unity will lack. Okay? If the word of God is not followed, then unity will not follow either. So the church must follow God's word. But he also says, he doesn't just say what they are to do. He actually says also what he doesn't want them to do. He says the body of Christ, this is Paul speaking. Paul says the body of Christ should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He says, count others more significant than yourself and look not to your own interests only, but to the interests of others. And this is where Paul launches into his full-fledged explanation of how Jesus did this. That though he was in the form of God, he counted equality with God, not something to cling to, but he took on flesh. He left his heavenly abode where perfect unity was experienced with his Father. He left his heavenly abode. He took on flesh. And Paul tells the church of Philippi, why did he take on flesh? To be obedient. Obedient how far and for how long? To the point of death. Even death on a cross. And God's word tells us that the death on a cross was for criminals. Jesus wasn't a criminal. But he thought not of his interest only, but of the interest of others. And so Christ dies to accomplish his father's glory and the atonement of sinful man at the same time. Thinking not of his own interest, but that of others. What we see in Philippians 2 is the reality that Christ set aside himself He set aside his convenience. He set aside his comforts. By the way, all of which were rightfully his. All of the things that Christ laid aside were his. He's the only person in history who said, I don't deserve that. And he laid everything aside to get that. And in turn, the church is called to follow this example. How do, how do we do this? Well, there was a little section in our value statement that we've read already. I'll repeat. Um, that I, I won't repeat the whole thing, but I want to read a portion of our value statement right here. It says, we value unity, therefore, dot, dot, dot. We elevate biblical precedence over personal preference. Nothing prevents unity like selfishness. Selfishness will always, always, always kill unity. I don't like that. Do it this way. Do it that way. 
I'm not going to be a part of that. I don't, again, I, I don't like that. You know what the six worst words for unity are? We've always done it that way. Or we've always done it this way. These words are so destructive to unity because they say we're not concerned about the current context. We're not concerned about the current circumstances or needs. These words say our past experiences are the barometer of truth and what is best. And not God's word. And worse than that, when selfishness becomes private conversation, where selfishness is expressed, unity is destroyed. And that's why Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. This is the biblical demonstration of unity. We said earlier that if a football team is unified, it doesn't mean that they all play the same position, but it does mean that they play their position for the benefit of the rest of the team. Okay? The quarterback might get the article in the paper. I referenced Michigan, right? Michigan's running back. All I keep talking about is, can Blake Corum win the Heisman? The Heisman is the most prestigious award in all of college football. Every year they say it's given to the best college football player. That's really not true. It's given to the best college football player from the SEC, but let's not get started on that. Can Blake Corum win the Heisman? Every article's written about Blake Corum. They got all the graphics flashed up on the TV every time Michigan plays, and it's Blake Corum, Blake Corum, Blake Corum, Blake Corum. But guess what? If Blake Corum didn't have an offensive line, we ain't talking about Blake Corum. I never once heard one of Michigan's offensive line, when they get to have a conversation, say, yeah, well, you know what? Blake Corum's only good because I block for him. So he better run where I tell him to run. He better do it the way I say he needs to do it. We never see that. And when they talk to Blake Corum, guess what he says every time? Man, I couldn't run without my offensive line. I couldn't have almost 20 touchdowns and 1,500 yards if it wasn't for the guys in front of me, the guys who don't get the notoriety, the guys who don't get recognized. You see, Blake Corum might get the article in the paper, but it takes the other people to make it possible. Why does the offensive line block for the guy that gets all the glory? Because it benefits the team. Because it benefits the team. Because the team has a goal. And the church, like a team, has a goal. And we must be unified around that goal. And if we're going to be unified, excuse me, unified, if we're going to be, if we're going to be able to accomplish that goal, we must be being built up in unity following the demonstration that we've seen by Christ. And then thirdly, I want you to see, and this is where I do want to spend the rest of our time, back in Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see, when we talk about the church, right, we've seen Jesus desires unity for his followers, that is the church. Jesus demonstrates how to achieve unity, but also Jesus' church is built up by unity. 
Ephesians 4, verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, where to grow up in every way into him that is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. The point of this passage and the gifts that the church has been given is that the church would be built up to maturity in Christ. The gifts were given to build up the body of Christ, to attain the oneness of faith and knowledge of Jesus. Why? Why does that matter? Does it really matter if we're maturing? Does it really matter if we're growing to be more like Jesus? Does it really matter if as we grow to be more like Jesus, we're unified in oneness of faith? It does. Do you know why? Because Paul says that building up of one another to maturity in Christ is so that people will no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by various doctrines and deceitful schemes. When he says children, he's not talking about young in age or stature. He's talking about immaturity as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, these gifts have been given to the church so that the church might stick together, that she might band together, that she might be strengthened, and that she might grow up in maturity in Christ. So that she might withstand the schemes of the devil. So that she can recognize truth from error. I've always told Pastor Aaron, I've never had the gumption to do it, and now I can't because I just told you guys. But I've always told Pastor Aaron that I wanted to tell the board some Sunday, hey guys, I'm gonna get up this morning and I'm going to preach something contrary to scripture. I just wanna know if our people would catch it. I don't know. I don't know if you would. Honestly, you you don't know if you would either, depending on how egregious the error was. But are you growing in maturity in Christ so that you can identify some error today? And as you continue to grow in Christ, you can identify more profound error tomorrow? Because Paul says when the church is unified and she's built herself up in love and the church is maturing that they can withstand the schemes and the various doctrines. Who do they belong to? The devil. There is nobody that wants to see any godly church unified uh, less than the devil. And he will do whatever he has to do. Why, why do you think false theology is so rampant? Number one, because of biblical illiteracy in the church. We have no idea what God's word says. So we'll fall for anything. But then number two, because if we continue to give ourselves to false doctrines or to things that aren't rooted in the word of God, he's winning. The purposes that the church has been given from God's word aren't being accomplished. Can we identify the works of the devil and resist them? When the body is maturing, 
Paul says, as she's built up in love, the answer is yes. Yes. So see, unity is not something that we've been called to that's unattainable. I want to tell you about a gold saddle goatfish. It's a small fish native to the Hawaiian reefs with a very distinct coloring. And in the past few years, divers in Hawaii have come across what they call a fascinating phenomenon. During their regular dives, they've begun to notice a large fish with the exact same brilliant colors as the gold saddle goatfish. Upon closer inspection, the divers realized that this wasn't one large fish, but in fact, a school of gold saddle fish swimming together in such impressive unity and in such perfect fish-shaped pattern that it appeared like one imposingly large fish not to be trifled with. It turns out when the gold saddle fish feels threatened, the little ones join together, unified in fish formation to appear much larger. Imagine if the church was so unified that when threats came upon her, she banded together and presented herself like these goatfish, not to be trifled with. You see, not only must this be the goal of the church as she pursues unity, but it's so important that each and every member of the body sees to it that they are personally not a danger to the church. Before we can be unified as a whole, every individual that identifies as a part of the body of Christ that is Dale Bible Church must commit to unity, elevating biblical precedence over personal preference. And when the individuals commit to unity, man, it's like becoming a big goat saddlefish. That's the weirdest thing in the world, isn't it? Like, what's a goat saddle goatfish? But think about that picture. What's a small fish, an individual member, bands together with other small fish, other individual members, the stature of the gold saddle fish, gold saddle goatfish becomes so imposing that its opponents leave it be. What if the church's stature in the community was so imposing that it made a difference in the world? What if the church was banded together around unity of faith and oneness of mind in Christ in such a way that not only was she being built up from within, but that the world was being changed outside? We must lay aside preferences. And when we don't know if that's possible, and I would contend, I understand sometimes that might be the case. And Jesus set aside his heavenly home, equality with God, and took on flesh. we got to lay aside preferences. We have to put away damaging talk. We have to destroy our selfish ambitions. Because this church and every church, not just Dale Bible Church, but this church and every church is not about any one of us. It's about the head of this church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we will commit to uphold what is declared in God's word over our preference, both in speech and in action. We value unity. Therefore, we strive to walk with humility and gentleness with one another 
in love and in oneness of faith, elevating biblical precedence over personal preference. May we strive for unity over selfish ambition. Christ desires it, he's demonstrated it, and his church is built up by it. Let's pray. Father, unity is a tall, tall task. It's a difficult task, but God, it is a task nonetheless that you have called your church to. And God, we want to be unified. I I pray that that is our prayer here this morning as individuals. That we want unity more than we want anything personally. That we want to see this body built up in love for one another around oneness of faith in Jesus Christ. Because God, he desires it. He's showed us how to achieve it. And it's for the betterment of the body. It's for the betterment of the world that we live in. The the goat fish is swallowed up when it's by itself, God. But together, it reigns triumphant. And God, may that be a reality for the church today. We know ultimately in the end the church reigns triumphant with you. But God, we're not there yet. We're here now. And in being here now, God, we must pursue unity. We must follow the example of Jesus Christ. We must heed the exhortations in your word. And we must make your word the guide in all things. As we make unity a priority, God, we pray that you would bless us. That you would help us to achieve that unity that we really would be knit together, that we would see that what's taking place here at Dale Bible Church is bigger than any of us individually. It's not about any of our glories. God, per our illustration, we're the offensive lineman and your son Jesus, he's the running back, God. May we block, may we do our job, and may he get the fame. May May the world be changed because your church is unified. Work mightily, God, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.